let's talk about something that's more than enough. Let's talk about Costco this morning. Costco. Yeah. Uh, Costco. Here's some, some stats about Costco that maybe you didn't know. Uh, first up, they've got over 300,000 employees in Costco stores worldwide, that is, and that's part-time and full-time. There's over 800 stores, by the way, if you're wondering, okay, how many stores are there? There's over 800 stores worldwide. In fact, if you were to go to Iceland, you would find a Costco there. Only one, but you would find a Costco in Iceland. Uh, there's 120 million plus members of Costco, card holders. Probably most of you in this room, I would guess, are members or card holders of Costco. I know my family is. $223 billion of revenue from my family annually. <laughs> no. Uh, from everybody annually. $223 billion of revenue. That's insane when we get into those numbers. But it doesn't stop there. If you've ever wondered how many products are in a Costco store, on average, about 4,000 different types of products in a Costco store. Uh, of those, you've got over 100 million rotisserie chickens sold every year. 100 million. Unpopular uh, position, I don't like rotisserie chicken. It tastes like chicken, and it, it's just, it's not good. And so I don't like rotisserie chicken, so we're not buying many of those 100 million rotisserie chickens in my household, but these we are, 120 million plus hot dogs. Yeah, yeah, those are amazing. For a buck 50 to get the hot dog and the drink, you can't beat it. In fact, I was skeptical of Costco because I didn't grow, grow up going to Costco, but I, I started going to Costco out in California, and uh, I was converted when I saw the, the hot dogs in the drink for a buck fifty. It was like, sign me up. And as a family of seven, we love the Costco hot dogs. Uh, here you go. One billion rolls of toilet paper sold by Costco every year. In fact, this is their number one item that they sell. There you go, toilet paper. And if you remember 2020 and the pandemic, I don't know what it was like here, but in California, people were dying. They, I mean, they were just mugging one another to get to the toilet paper in Costco. In fact, you had like whole church group chats that were like, hey, I heard this Costco over here restocked the toilet paper, trying to keep it hush-hush. And like, it was crazy. Well, they're selling over a billion rolls of toilet paper at Costco. Uh, but Costco has some things that you need, like hot dogs, and other things that you just don't need, right? That nobody needs, like this. This is a pool table that's made from an SS Camaro. Like, nobody needs this, and yet you can buy one at Costco. Or how about this one, a 72-pound block of Parmesan cheese. Costco will sell that to you. Some of you Italian families are out there and be like, what do you mean you don't need that? Of course you need that. <laughs> My family does not need a 72-pound block of Parmesan cheese, especially not for $900. Uh, how about this one, a 93-inch teddy bear, uh, 93 inches tall. That is massive, and uh, no, no. I mean, that is an, you're bringing home another child. Like, that is going to take up the space of multiple children in your home now. Uh, and then there's this one. If you want a ghillie suit, apparently you can buy one of those at Costco, too, because why not? Maybe that'll help you get the deals if you show up at Costco next time wearing the ghillie suit. Maybe you can get to the toilet paper before everybody else does. Uh, yeah, Costco. It's, it's good for the things that you need, though, right? When, especially for a family like mine, uh, they sell things in large quantities, and we, we need large quantities in my household. Um, but it's not good for everything that you need. In our passage this morning that we're going to look at in John chapter 6, it's one of the most familiar passages in all of the scripture, the feeding of the 5,000. Right? You, you know it. There, there's no spoiler alert to be had here. Uh, you've heard the story if you've been around the church. It's recorded in every single one of the Gospels. But in this passage, what I want us to pay attention to is this concept of our need. That Jesus not only recognizes the need of this crowd, 
but moves to, need it, to, to meet that need in such spectacular fashion that they're not only satisfied, but that there's an abundance left over. Y'all, the, the whole concept that we just sang about, Jesus is more than enough. That's what's being communicated here in John chapter 6, verses 1 through 13, which is our text this morning. That Jesus is more than enough. More than enough for our needs. But what does that actually look like as it fleshes itself out in our lives? Well, let's take a look. John chapter 6, let's pick up in verse 1. It says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing a large crowd that was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Six, John chapter 6, verse 1. After this, well, right there, we need to stop and say, after what? Well, a large gap of time has taken place between the end of chapter 5 when Jesus was down in Jerusalem and the opening of chapter 6. In fact, he's back up in Galilee and he's getting ready to go across the sea there, which meant from the, the western shore to the eastern shore. In fact, he goes to the northeastern portion to Bethsaida, as one of the other gospel accounts tells us. But after this, well, after what? What had taken place? Well, some of the parallel gospel accounts here help fill in the gaps. In fact, if we look at Mark chapter 6, we find out that Jesus had sent out the 12 two by two. Maybe you remember that story from Sunday school growing up as well. That Jesus sent out the 12 two by two and he gave them power to cast out demons and to heal the sick. And he also sent them out to preach the good news. Repent for the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God is at hand. So that's happened so far. That took place between when we last were in John chapter 5 and here in John chapter 6. But something else significant happened as well, and that is the death of John the Baptist. We read about that in the other Gospels, especially in Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. You can read an extended treatment of it there. But John had been arrested. We already knew that. But while imprisoned, it just so happened that John was still after the, uh, the, the business of, of, of God's holiness and God's kingdom and had confronted Herod about an ungodly marriage that he had. And Herod's wife didn't like that, made arrangements through her daughter that her daughter should request the head of John the Baptist, and John the Baptist was beheaded. So one of Jesus' closest relationships with his cousin here, John the Baptist, has now been severed, temporarily speaking, as John is no longer here. And that's, in fact, what precipitates Jesus getting in the boat with his disciples to go across the lake, the Sea of, Ti of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias. The region there was changed, by the way, to Tiberias because of the emperor Tiberius. And so that's why it's noted there by John as his readers may have been more familiar with Galilee as Tiberias at that time. But that's why, because of the death of John the Baptist, Jesus is looking to get away for a little bit with his disciples to grieve and, and, and also probably just to have some time to, to teach his disciples about what's been happening. But as it so happens, notice verse 2. It says, A large crowd was following him because they kept on seeing the signs that he was continually doing on the sick. The, the verb tenses here are suggesting that this is an ongoing thing. So this large crowd not just followed him, but was following him. In, in other words, it was a pattern. It was a habitual thing. They wanted to know where Jesus was, and wherever Jesus was, they were going to be. Why? Because they were seeing, or they kept on seeing, they were continually witnessing the signs that he was continually doing on the sick. 
So John records how many signs for us? Seven, right? Seven miracles that he calls signs. But here he's giving the head nod to the reality that Jesus was doing far more than just these seven signs. Jesus was continually doing these miracles, continually healing people, continually uh, casting out demons and, and, and everything else along the way. And that was attracting the presence of this large crowd. And so this large crowd isn't going to let Jesus have this solitude. In fact, the, the synoptic accounts, synoptic being Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they record for us that this large crowd went on foot to, to where Jesus was on the other side of the sea, that they were just obsessed with Jesus. Jesus, in other words, at this point in time, Jesus is famous. Jesus has his following. Jesus has his group that it wants to just be around him. Some of them genuinely, but many of them just because they were entertained, just because they wanted to see him do something, just because they hoped he would do something for them. So this is the crowd that meets Jesus on the other side as Jesus is trying to mourn the loss of John the Baptist, his dear friend. But verse three, it says, Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. And so as Jesus does this, what he's preparing to do, anytime a rabbi sat down in this setting, he sat down to teach, which is the opposite here. I know I come up here and I stand up behind this pulpit. But in, in the temple and other places, the, the, the Torah would be read and then the rabbi would sit down and then teach from the position of seat, being seated there. So as the crowds gather and as his disciples are there with him, close to him in proximity, Jesus begins to teach the crowds. The other gospel accounts of this miracle tell us that, that he began to teach them. In fact, in one of the gospels, uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 14, that account tells us that he had compassion on the crowd there and he began to heal them. And so Jesus is doing more than what we see here in John. John is assuming, because John is writing much later than Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote, John assumes that we already have the background of Matthew, Mark, and Luke in their accounts here. But for us this morning, just to remind ourselves of what's going on, this large crowd gets there. Jesus goes up on the mountain and sits down with his disciples to teach them. But as he's teaching them something unique was about to happen. They were going to feel a hunger. And that's part of why we read in Juice, 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 John, John 6, 4, that the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. That seems like an odd note because what's going on? Why would he throw this in there? Well, it's a time marker, but more than that, it's setting up what's about to happen. And what's about to happen is not just what we're going to read here, the feeding Think of what God did with the Israelites. In fact, we're reading it right now in the daily Bible reading. You read it this morning. If you've done your daily Bible reading this morning, God provided food for the Israelites, this manna from heaven, right? That's going to come clearly into view in the rest of John chapter 6 and 7 from this point forward. So John's setting up what Jesus is about to do by making the note about the Passover. He's connecting it back to something historical in Israel's life that's going to have further bearing as we study more of the gospel of John. Not as much in our passage, though it does set up what's about to happen, but especially in the, the text to come. But here they are. Here's the crowd. Jesus is teaching. They're all there. He's teaching. The other gospel accounts tell us late into the night. And as the, the evening drew near, the, the crowd gets hungry. John chapter 6, verse 5, it says this, lifting up his eyes then and seeing a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? In the other accounts, the, the disciples come to him and say, hey, teacher, it's getting late. Look at this crowd. We need to feed them. You need to dismiss them to go into the towns. Mark's account tells us that Jesus responded by saying, or we, we can just give them bread. Where can we get bread for them? This is a, 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 a situation where you see Jesus looking at the crowd and, and realizing 
and demonstrating an awareness of their need. He looks at the crowd and he's not just thinking, okay, yeah, just let them go and tell them I'll be back tomorrow morning at this time for the, the next sermon. He looks at the crowd and he realizes that they have a need. And then he's telling the disciples, he's saying, where can we buy bread? Where can we meet this need? How can we meet this need for them? And he asks the disciples, it says, to test them to see if they'd been paying attention to what he's been doing all along. Because in verse 6, he himself knew what he would do. So there's an awareness of the need and a knowledge that Jesus has to say, I'm going to meet this need. Anticipating someone's need is one of the greatest examples of selfless love that I can think of. The ability to have the forethought, to know that someone is going to have a need that they themselves may not even yet realize is something special. My dad demonstrates this on projects because he will show up to my house to help me with a project, not only with the tools for the project, but also for the tools that will anticipate the failure of the project that's bound to happen at some point. It's like, well, we need this. And he's like, don't worry about it. I got it. It's in my car. It's like, how did you know that we were going to have to? Anticipating a need. Jesus is aware of their needs. He anticipates their needs. He knew even before the disciples came to him and said, hey, they're going to get hungry. He knew what he was going to do. He knew about the need. And this is the greatest example of forethought and awareness that we see in Christ. His awareness of their need, and he's going to move to meet that need. But the first thing that we need to understand and pay attention to this morning is that he knows about it. He knows about it. And church, God knows about your needs this morning as well. Point number one is this. Trust that God knows your needs. Trust that God knows your needs. And listen, we're going to talk in point two about your greatest need, which is salvation. He knows about that need. But he knows about your other needs as well, your everyday needs. God knows about your need for food and water and shelter and transportation. He knows about your relational needs, your need for companionship and friendship and love and encouragement and support. God knows about your mental needs, that you need peace in the face of circumstances that are going to cause you to feel anxious and to be afraid. God knows about your financial needs, that you need a job, you need income, you need to be able to pay the bills and to pay your mortgage or rent. And he knows about retirement needs and he knows about the financial needs that come with having kids. God knows your needs. He knows your spiritual needs. He knows that you need to be sanctified, to be made more like Jesus. He knows that you need evangelistic opportunities in your life to share the gospel. He knows that you need encouragement in your faith. He knows that you need something to hope in. He, needs, he knows that you need your faith to be strengthened. God knows about these needs. He even knows about the needs that you and I don't give enough thought to. The fact that your lungs right now are inflating and deflating and that blood is coursing through your body, God knows that you need that. He knows that your brain needs to fire the synapses that it needs to fire to be able to hear the words that are coming out of my mouth and understand them in a sensible way. God knows that you need that. He's aware, church, of your needs. And trusting that he knows our needs looks like seeking his will in addressing those needs. Trusting that he knows them looks like seeking his will in addressing them. And that's where it gets difficult for us. Because not only does he know them, in fact, he even anticipates our needs. Think about this, Psalm 139, verses 3 through 4. Psalm 139, verses 3 through 4. Listen to David's description of God's knowledge of you. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. So here's what that means, y'all. Before you even verbalize what your need is and expressing it to God, he already knows it. He already knows that need. He knows all of your ways. 
intimately acquainted with every single one of your ways, meaning your path, your life, your situation. God knows it. God knows your needs. So some questions then. All right, fine. If God knows all my needs, do I even need to pray? If he already knows them, do I, what's the point in praying? Another question may be this. What about the needs that I feel like haven't been met in my life? I have these needs and where's God? And that may lead to the final question that I want to address with you this morning. And that is, if I have needs that God knows about and he's not meeting them, can he really be good? Can he really be good if I have these needs and he knows about them? In fact, he even anticipated them before I was aware of them and yet they're not met. Can God really be good? Well, let's talk about that first one really quick. Do I need to pray? If God already knows my needs, do I need to pray? Answer, yes. Okay, but why? A couple things. Number one, we're told to pray. Remember when the disciples came to Jesus and said, hey, uh, Rabbi, teach us to pray. He didn't say, ah, that's not really necessary. God already knows your needs. You're good. No, he said, when you pray, pray like this. And then he taught them how to pray. And in part of that prayer that he lays out, that model is to bring our needs to the Lord. To say, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. And ask for forgiveness, another need that we have. Forgive us our trespasses. Expressing our needs to the Lord is something that we're commanded to do. In fact, how about this as well? The, the parable of the persistent widow. You remember that? The widow who went to the judge over and over and over and over and over again with her need. And finally the judge relented. And Jesus said, we need to be like the persistent widow when it comes to our father. And so we're told to pray, number one. The second reason why we need to still pray, even though God knows our needs, is this. Prayer puts us in a humble posture of worship before God. When we come to him and express our needs to him, he delights in that because we are acknowledging and confessing that we need him to meet those needs. And he wants us to understand that. You remember in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, what, what dad among you, if your son comes to you and asks you for a loaf of bread, is going to give him a rock? Or if he asks you for a fish, you're going to give him a snake? He said, none of you are going to do that. And then he said this, if you being wicked know how to give good gifts to your own sons, how much more will your father give good gifts to those who ask him? And so God wants to be asked to church. God wants us to bring our needs to him. It's a, an expression of worship to him. Does he already know about it before we bring him? Yeah, he does. But he's, does he still delight when we bring them to him? Yes, he does. Do I need to pray? Yes, we do. Okay, well, what about the needs then that I've been praying about that haven't been met? What do I do with those? How, how can I, what, what gives there, Lord? Well, this is an opportunity for you, Christian, to trust in the sovereign guidance of God in your life. Isaiah the prophet said this in Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. He confessed, he said, God, your thoughts are not my thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. Church, that's important for us when we have a need that we're bringing to the Lord and we feel like, man, God's not answering that prayer. God's not responding to that. God's not meeting that need. Maybe you've got a, a difficult marriage right now and you feel like, man, God, where are you? Why isn't this working? Maybe you need a job right now and God has not provided that job for you and you're going, God, where are you? Why, why isn't this need being met? Maybe you've got a health crisis right now. Maybe your body is breaking down and you're thinking to yourself, man, God, what, what, is, what is going on? What, how, what, why won't you respond? I've, I've told you, look, I, I, I have this need. Why aren't you answering this need for me? 
What do we do in those situations? Well, it's, it's that humble dependence on God's sovereignty and his goodness, which leads to that third question. Is he good? If these needs that we have aren't being met and he's aware of them, is he good? Let me answer that by saying yes. But here's the thing. He's good because of this. Our estimation of what is good for us meaning that need that we would like to have met in our life. Our estimation of what is good for us is not always God's estimation of what actually is good for us. And that's an important distinction for us to make. When Paul writes in Romans 8, 28, and we know that for all who love God, all things work together for what? Good to those who love him to those who have been called according to his purpose, right? Here's the thing. Romans 8.28 is a verse that we love, but we want to define good. All things work together for my good. Great, let me define my good. My good is all of my needs here being met. I want perfect health. I want the perfect family. I want saved kids. I want the, the income to be stable and steady. But here's the thing, y'all. Our good is not up to us to define, but God to define. Because he goes on to say in verse 29, his purpose is that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined or purposed to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's why all things are working together for your good right now. And so there may be a need that you have that God is not meeting because he knows that meeting that need is not going to make you look more like Jesus. And sometimes it's the valley of the shadow of death where you're being made to look more like Jesus than you are on the mountaintop and in the sunshine. And that's the uncomfortable truth for us to grapple with because it's hard to be okay with that. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. That's part of what we're talking about here. Trusting God through the unmet needs. That he does know them. And the, 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 the comfort and the, the encouragement that we can take from this church is that he does know them. And if this truly was for our good, he would meet it. He's not going to withhold it. We're about to see. He who did not spare his own son, how will he not with him also freely give us all things, right? It's not like God is unable to meet the need that you have. So church, if you have a need in your life that right now is not met, it's because your loving, good father is telling you that right now, that is not ultimately what is good for you. And that's where our faith has to catch us. Because the temptation is for us to just fall off the edge of despair. But our faith can catch us so that we can say, okay, God, I'm going to trust you. I don't understand right now. It hurts right now. It's not comfortable right now. I have a lack right now where I'd like to have an abundance, but I'm going to trust you. That you know my need. Like you knew the need of this crowd as they gathered together. You knew that they were going to get hungry. And so do we still pray? Yeah, we still pray. And are we still going to have needs that aren't met? Yes, we're still going to have needs that aren't met. Talk to any one of us in this room after this service, and you will find out there are needs in our lives that haven't been met. Is God still good? Yeah, God's still good. You remember in our scripture reading this morning from Psalm 119, the sum of your word is truth. And what his word tells us is that he's a good God who's after our good as his children. And that good is not up to us to define, but him to define, that we would be made more like Jesus.
Well, the crowd is there and they're hungry. Their bellies are rumbling. And Jesus says, well, where are we going to buy food? <laughs> and Philip steps forward and he says, ah, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them even to get a little. Verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. I love Philip here. Philip takes Peter's spot for once. Peter's the loudmouth, foot-shaped disciple, right? Foot-shaped mouth disciple. He's always the one that's at the front line going, what, what are you talking about? Philip's like, hey, 200 denarii wouldn't be enough for even them to get a little bit. What is a denarius? That, this, this, this word, 200 denarii, what does that do for us? Okay, here's what it is. A denarius was about a day's wage for most people, okay? So what Philip is saying is over half a year's wages would not be enough to buy enough bread to feed all these people. By the way, you may be wondering, okay, so how many people were there? 5,000 men. Estimates from commentators will range anywhere from 15,000 to 20,000 represented by the number 5,000 men because there would have been the women and children present as well. And so this is a massive group. In fact, if you've ever been to the American Airlines Center, picture a sold-out American Airlines Center. That's about this number. Showing up at this mountain with Jesus hungry. Okay? So Philip's going, even if we had half a year's wages, it wouldn't be enough to feed all these people. Should just give them a little bit. Just a tiny little bite of food. See, Philip has a, a pedigree that's, that's rich before him in the Gospel of John. Remember Nicodemus? Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. How can a man enter his mother's womb? Or how about the woman at the well? Hey, you know what? If you knew who it was who asked you for a drink of water, you would have asked me for a drink of water, and I would give you living water. Where are you going to get this living water? You don't even have a cup. Or how about the paralytic? Do you wish to be made well? The paralytic looks at Jesus. Of course I wish to be made, made well, but nobody's here to put me in the water. Philip, you give them something to eat. Philip, we don't have enough money. Half a year's wages wouldn't be enough to buy enough food for them. Philip, just like the others, had stayed on the physical plane, not remembering who it was he was talking to. That's why the text says that he was testing them. But it's not just the money, it's the supply, right? There were no Costco's in first century Israel. They couldn't go to Costco and, and buy the, the two packs of bread and, and just get out there and start passing it out. Even if they had the money to, to feed everybody, they didn't have the supply. There wasn't a village within striking distance that would have had enough bread on hand to feed a crowd of this number. And so they were truly up against impossible odds. And so one of the disciples comes forward, Andrew. In fact, the synoptics record that Jesus said, well, how much food do we have? And so Andrew's the one here that John records that comes forward and says to Jesus, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? John's the only one that records that they were barley loaves. And there's significance there as well because the barley loaf was the, the commoner's bread. It was the poor person's bread. So this further stresses the, the desperation of the situation facing the disciples and Jesus at this point. This is truly a circumstance that looked impossible. But Jesus said, have the people sit down. 
Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Again, a sold-out American Airlines Center sitting down there. Mark's account tells us they sat down in groups of 50s and 100. So there was some organization to this, but they all sit down. And then in verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. Impossible circumstances are the breeding grounds of God's miracles. And that's what we see take place here. Jesus gives, it says in the synoptics, the the bread and the, the, the fish to the disciples and just starts passing it out to them to have them go out and pass it out to the crowd. And the crowd begins to eat. And it says they ate as much as they wanted. The contrast with Philip's statement there is meant to be noticed by us. 200 denarii, we couldn't even get enough for people to have just a tiny little bite. Jesus gives them all that they could ever need, as much as they wanted. We have five kids, and four of those are growing boys. Costco was made for families like ours, right? It was made for families like ours because we can go there and and we we can buy food in bulk. Look, I know how much my kids can eat in a single meal. There's no way these five loaves and two fish would have just fed my boys around the table let alone 5,000 men, 15 to 20,000 people. Look around this room. Imagine after service, we were like, hey, we're going to have lunch together as a church. And I pulled out five loaves and two fish. You would say, we're going to go find another church that has a bigger food budget. (laughs) Listen, we're so familiar with this that we can lose the impact of the miracle. This is spectacular what's taking place here. How did it happen? Was Jesus ripping off from the one? and I, I, I don't know. I don't know. All I know is what the text records and the result that they ate as much as they wanted. This was an impossible situation, but again, impossible odds provide the breeding grounds for the miracle to take place. And that's what Jesus does here. Listen, we talked about our needs in point number one, that, that, that we have them and that God's aware of them, but there's one need that rises above all others that surpasses them all. And that is the need that presents every man. And that is, where are you going to spend eternity? For every human being, eternity hangs in the balance. And there's a need that we have because our sin has separated us from God. And we are now infinitely divided from a perfectly holy God. And that's a need to be made righteous, which is the standard, to be made like God, holy like he is. Listen, that's a need we can't meet for ourselves. That is impossible odds for you to try to be good enough, to be holy enough, to be a good person enough for God to look at you and say, yes, I will accept you. That's impossible odds. You can't do it. But again, impossible odds with the breeding ground of miracles. And just like Jesus moved to meet the needs of these crowds by providing them bread, Jesus has moved to meet your greatest need about what does eternity look like for you by providing not the physical bread, but the bread of his body through the cross. Our second point this morning along those lines are remember the needs already met. As you think about the unmet needs in your life, as you think about, man, God, where are you in this situation? Is God still good because I've got this need? Let me encourage us as we begin to wrestle with that, to start at the cross, to go back to remember the need that already has been met by God. You know, this is something that we've got to teach our children to remember the blessings that they've already received, right? It's, it's always fun the day after Christmas to have your kids say, hey, can we go to the Target and and look at toys? It's like, are you kidding me? (laughs) Right? But man, that's us with God so often, isn't it? 
okay, God, thanks for that, but, 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 but what else do you have for me? I mean, imagine if when my father-in-law walked my, my wife, my bride, down the aisle to me, and she got down to the front of the church, imagine if I shuffled her off to the side and looked at him and was like, what else do you got for me? Yeah. You can imagine how that would have gone, right? I don't think I'd be married today. That's absurd. Because of what a gift that she was to me. It's the greatest gift that my father-in-law could have ever given me as my wife. And especially in that moment, I would have never thought, do you have any more? Guys, the greatest gift, church, the greatest gift that God could have ever provided for you, he's already given you in Christ. He's already provided for it. He's moved to meet that need. And it should impact us and stay with us. After my wife had our twins, uh, we'd been discharged from the hospital and we were still in Arizona at this point that we were getting ready to take the job in, in California at Compass Bible Church. But we were in Arizona and I was a pastor at a church there in Arizona and we had the twins and, and we were in the hospital for the, the stay of the twins and everything else. And then we went home and, and nobody from our church in Arizona darkened our door. Uh, and, and is what it is. Um, I think we got a couple of texts, but nobody was there. Anyways, we get home and all of a sudden I get a phone call and I answer the phone and it's the, the, the wife of our senior pastor from our church back in, in Arizona or in California. And she called and she said, hey, PJ, she said, Heather and I, one of the wives of our other pastors, we, uh, we jumped in the car and uh, we drove the six hours from Alicia Viejo to, to Phoenix because we wanted to come see the twins and meet the twins. You know, we were in a position of just feeling a loneliness and a, a, a void in our lives and we had a need um, of fellowship. And to not have anybody from our, our church there in Arizona, and we'd been there for over two years with that church body, laboring, serving, uh, and, and investing ourselves there, and nobody showed up at all. And to have them <clears throat> not just show up, but to jump in the car and drive six hours to be there, to hold our twins for 30 minutes, to go back to a hotel, to get up the next morning and drive back to California. Guys, that met a need that stuck with us in such a powerful way what God has done for us in Christ should stick with us in so much of a greater way even than that. Some ways for us to think about remembering that need. A couple things. Number one, share the gospel with yourself daily. I know that sounds cliche. You've heard it before, but it's true. Go back and rehearse the gospel with yourself daily. Be reminded of this daily, of what God has done for you. Second, share the gospel with other people. You want to be reminded of how much God has done for you? Start sharing the gospel with other people. Start evangelizing the lost. Seeing the lost in their plight, in their need, in their desperation, and remembering that was you at one time. And God was so kind to you. Third, share your testimony with other people, with other believers. Make that a part of your regular fellowship together as a church. You're spending time with a new family. You invite a family over for dinner that you haven't had over for dinner before. Make it a point to say, hey, I'd love to know how you got saved. And then also share your testimony. In fact, that's the, the other point. Ask others to share theirs as well. As a church, we should be doing this on a regular basis with each other. Reminding ourselves of, of our own stories about how God saved us to be reminded of the needs that have already been met as we see them in our lives and as we see them in the lives of others. 
a couple other suggestions. Create a gospel playlist on Spotify, Apple Music, whatever you use. Put a, a playlist together of songs that talk about the cross, that talk about salvation, that talk about what Jesus has done for you. And listen to those songs. Get those as your earworms for the day so that you're singing songs in your mind about what God has done for you in Christ. Read books about the gospel. Read books about the gospel. Just two to, that come to mind right now. Uh, what is the gospel by Greg Gilbert? Great book. Pick that up and read that. Be reminded by somebody else of the, the great truth of the gospel and what Christ has done for you. Another one, Finally Alive by John Piper. A great book about new life in Christ that we have at the gospel. How about this? Pick up a, a systematic theology and read the salvation section in a systematic theology. Be reminded of the, the depth of the significance of the salvation that you and I have in Christ. Whatever these suggestions that you see up here, whichever ones jump out to you, maybe a couple of them, grab those, do those a little bit this week to be reminded of what God has already done for you, the need that's already been met for you in Christ. This is good for us to do when life is going well. The temptation is for us to, when life is going well and we're not in the valley, to think, you know what, I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. I am all right because... I, you know, I, I'm not mindful of any particular need in my life. And so we're not really thinking much about what God has done for us. And so when things are going smoothly, remember the needs that God has already met for you. That will prompt you to worship him. But also, second, it's good to be reminded of this when you didn't plan, for example, for a week at the hospital. That wasn't part of your schedule. And all of a sudden you find yourself at the hospital for a week. It's good to be reminded when you've got those needs facing you of what God has already done for you. And as we're going to see in a moment in point number three, in, in the pledge that is for what he will continue to do for you. It's also good to be reminded of this when the world puts demands on your time that threaten to crowd the church out of your life. To be reminded of, man, God, you have done so much for me. It's good to be reminded of this when you're in line at Costco and you're feeling inflation in real time. Okay, God, you've already provided for a much greater need than, than my bank account. It's good to be reminded of this when the latest regimen of treatments that the doctors prescribed didn't have the impact you hoped they would. It's good to be reminded again when we face unmet needs that God has met our greatest need. Again, Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good for those who love the Lord, that we would be conformed more to the image of Christ. Church, do you believe that God has already done enough to, to guarantee that in your life? Through the cross, through salvation, because right after that, in Romans 8.32, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us, will he not with him also graciously give us all things? Do you believe that? That he's already given you the greatest thing that he could possibly give, and he will continue to meet the needs that you have in accordance with what he just said previously, your good, that is that you would be made more like Christ. So as we reflect back on the, the need that's been met, the greatest need that's been met, it reminds us that he's going to continue to meet our needs because that's what happens in the text. He doesn't just fill them up to satisfaction on that day, but the disciples gather up 12 baskets full of leftovers, not just as a, 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 an image to go, look at that, that's super cool. What did they do with the leftover bread, do you think? They, they kept eating it as the needs kept arising throughout the rest of the week, the rest of the, the days in front of them. But pick back up in verse 12. It says, when they had eaten their fill, again, there's the emphasis here. 
All were satisfied. They ate their fill. He met the need fully. Your need at the cross met fully. You have the full righteousness of Jesus now so that you are no longer alienated from God, but that you have been reconciled, you've been brought near. There's nothing lacking anymore. When they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. It's a funny scene to picture all of these people on the, 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 these grassy hills, lounging back on their elbow, stifling back a belch, going, I, I couldn't eat anymore. I, I couldn't eat anymore. It, especially when you consider that it started with five loaves and two fish. It's, it's insane. It's crazy to see this. And they gather up, and they gather up the fragments, and, and the Jewish law said anything bigger than an olive should be preserved. So they would go, and they, they gathered up all of the fragments, and they put them in these baskets, and with the, 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 the fish and the, the loaves together, it, it amounted to 12 baskets full of fragments. Now, all the Gospels record that there were 12. And there's commentators that say, what was the significance of 12? And there's, there's different understandings there. There's different ideas there. Some think that Jesus was communicating because of the 12 tribes of Israel that he was enough in abundance for Israel. It's possible. Others think that he was uh, reforming or restarting with the 12 disciples and identifying them now as the 12 and the 12 baskets full. Our purpose this morning, guys, I want you to be reminded that there was more than enough. In fact, you remember the DBR from this morning, if you read it, if not, hopefully you'll read it later on today, Exodus 16, 18. Exodus 16, 18. It says this. It says, but when they measured it, that is the manna, with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. Now, the point there was Jesus provided, or God provided, enough for their daily needs. But notice what he didn't provide. He didn't provide leftovers. So God providing the food through Moses, there were no leftovers. God providing the food through Jesus, there's an abundance of leftovers. There's an abundance of leftovers. Jesus comes not just to be enough, but to be more than enough for us. And this is good for us to ponder because John included this sign to point us to a greater reality about Jesus. That is, when Jesus meets a need, he does so in extravagant fashion. When Jesus supplies, he supplies more than enough. The grace of God has met our greatest need, yes, but that doesn't mean that we've squeezed all there is to squeeze out of God's providing grace. Our third and final point this morning is this. Find grace in the small things. Find grace in the small things. Small things. Our baptism service is a couple weeks ago. Not small in, in some regards, but small in the sense of, you know what? Baptism services happen. They, they come and they go. And that was such a huge blessing to me as a as we did that, as we gathered together as a church, that was such a, a grace of God to, to just be able to do that together, cold water and all. Another grace that I saw show up this week, my, my sons said, hey, Dad, can we go play catch? It's a grace of God that my sons still want to do that. There's a grace of God that my, my little ones still want to be tucked in at night and a kiss goodnight before they go to bed. I hate that, by the way, I hate the memes that say, did you ever realize there's the, the last day happens when your kid wants you to read a book to them? Like, okay, thank you for punching me in the face and, and just leaving me now nostalgic when I don't, it's not even happened yet. No, but that's a grace. I got to take my wife out on a date on Thursday. That, that was a grace of God. 
The weather this week was absolutely beautiful for us. That, that's evidence of God's grace in our lives. You know, the greatest one, my check engine light this week turned off by itself. I didn't even have to take it into a mechanic. <laughs> that's God's grace in my life. I literally got in my car, hit the button, it turned on. I was like, yes! That was God's grace in my life. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Those are lighthearted examples of God's grace in our lives, but sometimes it gets heavier, y'all. Somebody was sharing a story with me before the service of a, a man who this week unexpectedly lost his wife and daughter in a car accident where he was behind the wheel. And it got me thinking as I was listening to this, what does this sermon have to say to him this morning in the hospital? He said the last thing he remembers hearing is his wife's voice calling out to him as he was passing out. And now she's gone. How is Jesus more than enough for him? One way, that's not the last time he's going to hear his wife's voice. She was a follower of Jesus. And so he knows that there's going to be a day that he steps foot into eternity and hears his wife's voice again. Hears his daughter's voice again. That's the ongoing effects of God's grace in our lives, even through the pain and the sorrow and the heartache. God's grace is always going to be there if we'll look for it couple of challenges for you this week along those lines. Number one, pick up your journal. Say, I don't have a journal. If you've got an iPhone, you got a journal. It's built in now. There's actually an app called Journal. Let's redeem something that Tim Cook created and, and use it for Jesus, right? And when I say journal, you don't have to write pages and pages and pages. Jot down a few sentences each at the end of each day about where you saw God's grace in your life today. Journal. Second, accountability. Accountability. We have accountability for so many things. Can we get some accountability for gratitude in our lives? Find somebody that'll text you each day and say, hey, what's something that you're thankful for today? And you do that for them. Hey, what's something that you're thankful for today? To cause you to stop down in the midst of the worst day that you could possibly have and think, I'm thankful for this. I saw God's grace in abundance today. There was leftover grace, if I could put it that way, for me today in this way. Accountability. Third, reminders. Whether that's a note card that you put up on your mirror at home or whether that's app reminders on your phone that pop up to say, what are you thankful for right now? Or a calendar appointment that you, you make with yourself to stop and be, be grateful for God's leftover grace in your life today. Whatever that looks like. We won't do this if we're not intentional about it. If we're not intentional about it, we'll just coast through our lives and the things that we'll bring to the, to the Lord are all the unmet needs that we feel without realizing how many of the needs he's already met for us. So I'm just saying, let's pay attention a little bit more to the leftover grace that God has provided for us. But our greatest need has already been met. As we're about to turn to remember that greatest need through communion together, it's a helpful message for us. In fact, as the elements are passed out, one of the things that we will receive is the bread. Bread. 
as Jesus passed out the bread in just a, a a little bit, he's going to stand up before the crowds and not say, hey, here, have some physical bread. He's going to say, I am the bread of life. He's going to point to the fact that he's going to give his body as the bread on the cross so that our greatest need can be met. Not just satisfactorily, but in superabundance. That's the beauty of the cross, guys. It's not just that God has forgiven you and, and given you a clean slate and said, don't screw up anymore from here on out. It, it, it's no, that he has forgiven you and credited your account with the abundance of the righteousness of Jesus. So that it's finished. That you are forgiven completely. Past sins, present sins, future sins, forgiven at the cross. So as these elements are, are passed here in just a minute, remember there's a, a few things to think about. Number one, we want to beware of a lack of, of conversion here. The communion is meant for believers. It's meant for the body of Christ. And Paul gives us specific instructions about that, saying that we shouldn't take these elements in an unworthy manner. And so let me encourage you, if you are not sure about your standing with Christ, or if you are not a believer, please just let these trays pass by. Second thing is we need to beware of a lack of confession that this is a perfect time for us to reflect as the elements are passed, for you to reflect and to think about your life and to say, with David, Lord, try me, search me. If there's any grievous way in me, make it known to me. And the beautiful thing about the sufficiency of what Christ has already done for us is as a sin comes to your mind, you are able to bring it to the Lord, to confess it, and he will forgive you because of Christ. It's a lack of confession. And then finally, lack of concentration that we would just go through the motions here this morning. Let's remember the significance. That's what this is about. There's nothing magical about the, the, the juice and the wafer. It's juice and wafer in the trays. It's juice and wafer when you hold onto it in your hands. It's juice and wafer when it goes into your body. It's not being transformed into anything else. This is what we call a memorial. It's meant for us to take this time to remember. So let's do that with great intentionality as the elements are passed. And I'll come back up in just a moment.
Father, we are thankful for the need that all of us had that was met at the cross. We're thankful for the blood of Christ shed for us. We're grateful that he took our place and satisfied your wrath fully against our sins, past, present, and future. And there's nothing that we need to do to finish that. And he didn't just bring us back to square one, but he gave us his full righteousness. And he rose again so that we can be confident that we too will one day live with him forever. In the interim, we find ourselves here and we remember through taking communion together. So we thank you for this time and what it means for us as a church and pray that we would do it in a way that causes us to remember not just right now, but even through the rest of the week, the great provision that we have in Christ for our greatest need. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Why that? Why the Lord's death until he comes? Because it keeps us remembering that the greatest need has been met. And if you met that need, he's going to take care of the rest too. Church, will you stand with me as I pray for our dismissal? God, we thank you for the week that lies in front of us, though none of us know what's going to bring. None of us know the trials that will come. None of us know the triumphs that will happen. But we know that you've already done enough for us to this point. And so God, help us to trust you this week as we move forward. Help us to trust you this week as we walk into whatever you have in store for us to go in confidence that you are the God who will provide all that we need for our good as you define it, which is that we would be made more like Jesus. So we pray that this week would be a week full of making us more like Christ for his glory and in his name that we pray, amen. Amen. Have a great week, church.